Cinema Jaws is sponsored by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. And we thank them for their support. You're listening to Cinema Jaw, the greatest movies podcast ever, recorded on location from our respective homes in Chicago. My name is Matt Kay, and with me is... Rye the Movie Guy. And this week on Cinema Jaw, Matt, we are going to cry a little and laugh a little as we cover our top five favorite dramedies of all time. Yeah. this. Well, we'll talk about it when we get to the list, but this is a tricky one because it's like what exactly constitutes a dramedy? And is it more about the comedy, more about the drama? We'll discuss. I agree. When we first brought this up, I told you, I think 70% of the films made are dramedies. It feels that way anyways. I, yes, you're right. You're right. You can make an argument for just about any movie that it's a dramedy, at least in some sense. Well, when we get to the top five, we'll say what parameters we each went by to constitute a dramedy, but I, I have mine written down. So we picked okay. this topic because we have great guests who are joining us that it ties right into. We do. Michael Glover Smith and Emily Lape are joining us. They have a new film out entitled Relative. We've had Michael on before, Emily's first time. Can't wait to talk to them about the movie, which we both just watched. I know. Large ensemble in Relative too, which you don't see in these smaller independent films. Can't wait to talk to Michael on how we got the cast and how he managed to direct such a talented cast as well. Well, I have some questions, too. It was shot right around your neighborhood. It was, indeed. Yes, practically right outside my front door. Yes. Besides that, we have more going on. It is still Nicolas Cage month, Matt. I mean, it's like the best month of the year, you know? And we have two reviews, Ryan. Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which I know everyone's been waiting for, and Fantastic Beasts, The Secret of Dumbledore, which people probably are really waiting for. And I just walked out of the Northman. I'll, I'll have at least a capsule review. Still wrestling with this one, but I'll, I'll have something to say after the break on the Northman as well. Nice. And in honor, get a, get a load of this, Matt. I, I write the trivia each week. In honor of Relative, we are going to play Relative Movie Trivia. You know, there's a lot of people related in Hollywood, so think of how that's going to play into movie trivia this week. Sound good? Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, let's kick it off with a Nicolas Cage fact. All right, Ryan, this is a great one. Nicolas Cage may very well be a time-traveling vampire. According to the internet, when he was asked about this photo that looks extremely like him, taken in the 1800s, bore an uncanny resemblance to the actor. He said this to David Letterman. There is a resemblance, but how can I be polite about this? It's a somewhat slowed down version of me. Nicolas Cage explained this of his mustachioed doppelganger. An eBay seller attempted to auction off the photo of an unidentified man from Bristol, Tennessee, that he believed proved Nicolas Cage was some sort of undead. He was asking a million dollars for the for the photo, but the auction disappeared. Cage, you know, of course, denies this theory. And he, he furthermore said to Letterman, I don't drink blood. And the last time I looked in the mirror, I do have a reflection. 
And I'm going to post this photo in the show notes so people can take a look. I'm sure most people have seen this. Right. If you haven't, Jawheads, just Google Nicolas Cage vampire and this picture will pop up. And it's hilarious. It couldn't have happened to a better actor, right? I mean, right. if it was, you know, Michael Caine, we would have just been like, ah, it just looks like Michael Caine, whatever. But well, with Nicolas Cage, of it took Michael on a, a legend of its own. <laughs> right. It did. A photo taken of Michael Caine in the 1800s, that's just Michael Caine when he was right. young. Just a you young know? boy. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, because it was Nicolas Cage, it, there was something... To believe they're a story to follow suddenly you know it is it is pretty uncanny yeah i'll say that oh i love it i i saw you put that in slack and i laughed again i've seen the picture probably a hundred times i still laugh when i see um side by sides of nick cage and that vampire from the 1800s <laughs> I, I believe there's a john travolta one too so maybe i'll throw that in as a bonus awesome all right matt we ready to get this show really rolling yes yes i am all right Without further ado, we bring in our guests, Michael Glover-Smith and Emily Lape have a new film out. It is entitled Relative, in which Michael wrote and directed the film, and Emily stars in it. Michael, Emily, welcome to Cinema Jaw. Thanks, Matt, Brian. Happy to be here. Are, are you guys both calling in from Chicago, or are you guys both located? <laughs> I'm calling in from Rogers Park, very close to where we shot Relative, and uh, I believe Emily is not too far away. No, I'm in Lincoln Square, so not not too far. Nice. Why, why don't we start there? And, and well, actually, why don't we start with the synopsis? Tell tell everyone what the what the movie's about. We'll give this this one to Michael since you wrote it. Okay, so um, Relative is a comedy drama or a dramedy in the parlance of our times um, about a graduation party for um, a 22-year-old young man who's just graduated from college, and it's about um, his family, uh, his siblings who are kind of scattered throughout the Midwest uh, come home for this occasion, and it's about um, you know, three days in the, in the life of this uh, family, the Franks. Can I ask you on that? Is is there some, a lot of writers write from, you know, their own experiences. So how much of this, do you come from like a large family? Do you have older, other, older siblings? I do. I have, a, I have an older brother and a younger brother and we're all very close in age. So I was definitely drawing on that. Um, in the film, it's a family of four with uh, two brothers and two sisters. Um, so I took a little bit of license, but I'm definitely drawing on my own family experience. Nice. And, and, and the movie was shot in Rogers Park. We were talking a little bit about this before uh, we hit record. And, and for people who don't know, the, Rogers Park is uh, probably one of the most diverse, extremely artistic um, neighborhoods in Chicago. I'm sure most cities have a place like this. So how did that come about? Was it just because that's where it was? And, and I was going to ask you to retell that story about the house and how you found it. Yeah, we really lucked out. Um, we found this amazing house on Newgard Avenue, which was built in 1893. It's a really beautiful old you know, Victorian home um, that I later found out is actually a very historic building because it was built by a guy named Henry Nygaard, who was a Norwegian immigrant, and he was the electrical contractor who supplied power to the World's Fair in 1893. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. And, so and, he, and also, also, he looked just like Nicolas Cage. 
<laughs> he is Nicolas Cage. <laughs> he is uh, he he is the vampire Nicolas Cage electrical contractor. Um, but yeah, he built the house for his his daughter, and the street that it's on, Newgard Avenue, is named after him because he changed his name from Newgard to or from Nygard to Newgard to Americanize it. So, yeah, we really, really lucked out because it's a beautiful home and it's been um, immaculately restored and maintained over the years. And for me, the whole movie kind of started with this image of this house Um, because I live in Rogers Park and I walk up and down these streets all the time. And I see these beautiful Victorian homes and I always wondered, you know, who who lives here? And um, I realized, you know, these, these houses, uh, many of them are very, very old and they were built by people in order to house large families. And they tend to stay within families and just kind of get passed down from sure. generation. So I, I, I was kind of meditating on what kind of family I thought would live there. And, uh, and then the, the Frank family um, was born. Sprung from your mind. So, so were you, are you a fan of these kind of family dramedies in general, Michael? Um, I, I am. I mean, there are quite a few films within this sort of subgenre that I, that I really love, but, um, you know, this is my fourth feature film and it's the first film I've ever made that deals with family relationships. My previous films are more about, you know, romantic love. So, uh, so it was a little bit of a stretch for me because I think family relationships are oftentimes more complicated than romantic relationships are. So Emily, I was going to ask you, um, once this is on the page out of Michael's head from the photo, how do you get involved? Did you first read the script? Did you come to uh, like a casting call? How did you get involved with the project? Well, I don't know if you know this about Michael, but he often casts from like films that he sees. And so he, I wrote and directed a feature film in 2017 called Mercy's Girl. And he saw my film. I can't remember it what film festival. Um, film festival in Chicago and we became friends he contacted me he was like hey I like your film like your Chicago filmmaker let's meet up and so we kind of became friends and I knew he was you know working on a new film and he's like you know how do you feel about acting in it you know do you were you interested in reading it and so we just kind of had discussions over a period of time had coffee and um actually the part that he had in mind for me was a much like shorter part which i was happy for because i wasn't really interested in acting anymore i was more like focused on directing and writing and ended up he like messaged me one day and he's like how how do you feel about reading for this other character norma uh one of the daughters because we're just like having a hard time finding somebody that like has her energy or fits and I was like, oh, that's a bigger part. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. But I read it. And now that I've seen the film, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I can see. I, I couldn't see it when I was acting in it, to be honest. And that's, like, you know, really hard to say as an actress. Like, I didn't really, I wasn't sure. But now that I see it, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I had the energy of Norma. I feel it. And. And I'm glad I feel lucky that Michael even asked me to do it. So Michael with uh, family 
dramedies like this, you got to believe that these are actually family members, that this is a unit that could have exist in the real world. So before you even start shooting, do you do anything with the cast to get them close? Because watching Relative, it felt like I was watching a family on screen. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think ca- casting was everything. And um, it was one of the most difficult aspects of making the film. You know, once I had all these great actors, then it was easy. But, um, you know, not only did we have to work on making sure that the chemistry was right between the actors that it could feel like, you know, their personalities um, meshed well. It was also kind of necessary to make sure that they looked reasonably like each other. And, um, you know, the first person I cast was Claire Cooney, who I know has been on your show before. Yeah, she's Uh, great. She's amazing. I've worked with her a couple of times, but, um, you know, so I wrote the part of Yvonne for her and she was the first person I cast. And, you know, Claire's an amazing actress, um, but she is six feet tall. And she's tall. The next next person I cast was Wendy Roby, who is also amazing. I'm sure you guys have seen her on Twin Peaks and uh, Mm -hmm. The People Under the Stairs by Wes Craven, um, where she plays an evil mother, very different than the the mother she plays in Relative. But, um, you know, I think Wendy and Claire look alike. You know, they both have really great kind of statuesque faces. They have good, you know, bone structure. The only problem is Wendy is way shorter than Claire. <laughs> and I, you know, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but I thought to myself, you know, whoever I cast as the father has to be really tall because, um, you know, we have that scene where they they take a family portrait in front of the fireplace. And I thought, Claire Cooney cannot tower over both of her parents. That will look ridiculous. Um, you know, we can't we can't have uh, Wendy Roby standing on an apple box for every shot in this movie. So, um, so I thought about uh, Francis Guinan, who I've also been a big fan of for a long time as the father. Um, I had never met him. I had actually seen him on um, stage in a Steppenwolf play. Sure. And uh, and, I, and I've seen him in you know many films uh, over the years as well. But um, before I contacted his agent to send him the script, I actually did a Google search. How tall is Francis Guinan? <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, Google told me he was six feet tall. So I said, okay, it's safe to offer him the part. Uh, yeah. And then That's I kind hilarious. of thought, well, people are going to see this and they're going to say, okay, Claire got her looks from her mom and she got her height from her dad. <laughs> yeah, it all thought out. I love it. But there, there is that wonderful scene in the movie where Claire goes running with her mom. And it's very yeah. believable. And, and a mom, daughter, I mean, you know, moms as they get older sometimes, you know, shrink down a little bit. It totally worked. I, I love that scene when they were running together. Yeah. And yeah, the the guy who plays the the dad, what what's the actor's name again? Francis Guinan. He's he's wonderful. I just knew him as soon as he popped up as the Steppenwolf guy, because I've seen him on stage there a couple of times. So great cast. He's done yeah, film work too, right? Francis has. Oh, he, oh, Tom's. oh he's been in a yeah. ton of films. Yeah. I've seen him around. That was one of the cool things about this, because between the Chicago actors I'm very familiar with, you know, we saw a few people who have been on Cinema Jaw before, which was a real treat. The, the the rest of the cast. And I didn't even make that people under the stairs connection until you just mentioned it. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's why I was having that. This is a familiar face feeling, you know, pretty much the whole cast. Very familiar, yeah. which makes it feel more like family, you know? 
Exactly. And, and the cool thing is, you know, uh, Francis and Wendy are both like Chicago theater legends, you know, so they're, they're revered in the local theater scene. And then all of the actors we cast to play their children, you know, knew who they were and looked up to them. And that really helped with the chemistry. I, I remember, um, Emily, you probably remember we did the table read like three days before we started shooting. And I feel like everybody got so excited after we did that table read because we, it was the first time most of the actors had met face to face, but, um, just watching the parents crush it, you know, I think it, it just, everybody's confidence uh, went up and we all bonded, you know, super fast. Em Emily, you play a character who I would say out of the four siblings is the most uh, grounded, mature character of the four. Seems to have yeah. her life together the most and is married to Mike McNamara. So she really scored in life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's an Easter egg for our, our, our Chicago jawheads. Um, but is is that does that correlate to to your life? This is this is who you are in my life. No, <laughs> a big stretch. I think I'm more of like a free spirit kind of like you know just take off and go and try things. Artist, um, like I've I've moved around a lot. Yeah, uh, I'm not very. I don't have a lot of like stability. Like I just kind of try things and go for things. Um, I'm probably more like Wendy's character where she's kind of like a hippie artist, very liberal and now is a librarian. So like I'll probably end up being a librarian when I'm older. I'll, I'll calm down and be surrounded by books. So. <laughs> I, I, I love the parents too. Like that, that line when they're in bed and they're like, they're discussing their, their parenting skills and how their kids have turned out as they're approaching adulthood or in their adulthood. And they're like, well, at least none of them are Republicans. <laughs> Just the, that was a great joke. Great joke. Good line. Thanks. It was, and there's probably the laugh out loud moment. I'm not going to spoil it. I, I hope I want people to laugh out loud like I did, but um, the build up to it anyways, deals with a character who talks about, being from Iceland and going back to Iceland, there, there's an app, I guess, because Iceland is so small. Is that a true story that there's an app to let people know that if they may related. be related? That is 100% true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my wife and I have uh, been to Iceland and, uh, you know, we went there on a vacation about 10 years ago. And um, so I did a lot of, you know, research before I left. And that was one of the weird facts that I came across. And I just thought, man, this is way too good. I have to use this in the film. <laughs> <laughs> you used it very well. You did. Yeah. Huge laugh awesome. over here when I was and, watching and, it. And that actress uh, who plays Hecla, Elizabeth Stam, you know, is amazing. Um, I think she is going to be a star. I mean, talk about a great comedic actress. Um, I should point out, you know, next uh, week, we're going to be at the Julian Dubuque uh, Film Festival in Iowa. Emily's going to be there for the first show with me uh, to do a Q&A. And then Elizabeth is going to be there for the second show to do a Q&A with me. Nice. Awesome. So for the Jawheads around the country, this is where we're at right now with Relative. Is it's in the festival circuit. Is that what we call it, Michael? Yeah, it's in the festival. I mean, we just kind of began our festival run. Um, we had our premiere last month in Tampa at the Gasparilla Film Festival. And then we just screened in Chicago for the Midwest Film Festival. And um, we have a bunch more screenings lined up, some of which I cannot talk about yet because... Uh, 
those, those festivals are still accepting submissions. But, uh, but no matter where you live, you're probably going to have a chance to see it without having to travel too far from home over the next course of the next year. That's awesome. Nice. Um, what's it like, Michael, going to a fest and seeing it screened and the reaction that it gets? Because it's got to be getting some laughs throughout. It's the best feeling in the world. I mean, you know, when we played at Gasparilla, it was crazy because uh, the theater was packed. Um, I didn't know anybody. It was a little nerve wracking because when you premiere out of town, you don't know anyone, uh, but it was received very enthusiastically. You know, there was a lot of laughter. Um, and then after it was over, some people who I did not know came up to me and said, you know, I cried. Your, your movie made me cry. And so um, to kind of go back to your point about dramedies, you know, that's that's what I'm trying to do as a filmmaker. I want to make people laugh and I want to make people cry. So, um, you know, having festival screenings is the best because that's as close as a filmmaker ever gets to feeling like a, a live musician, you know, where you get that mm. instant, you get that instant feedback. Yeah. Um, it's very, very gratifying, but it only happens once every few years because you, you spend so long making the film. Um, and then, you know, you have this window of time where you tour around with it um, and then you're done and then you have to, spend years raising money for the next one. <laughs> sure. Yep. So for jawheads that want to check out relative or learn more about it, see if it's going to play in their town. Is there a website or where should we send them online, Michael? Um, you should go to my personal website, which is whitecitycinema.com. And um, there's a screenings page on my website where all of the screenings will be listed. Nice. And we'll throw a link in the, in the show notes. And Emily, how about, uh, how about you? If people want to follow you, uh, check out the films you're making in your career, where should we send them? Honestly, my IMDb, IMDb page. Yeah. I don't, I don't have social media or anything like that. Um, I have a, I'm going into pre-production right now for a feature that I'm shooting in New Mexico in October. Cool. We'll, we'll put the link in the notes. As you guys heard, we are celebrating Nicholas Cage here this month of April. If you got marooned on an island like Tom Hanks did in Castaway, and all that made it was like a, a TV VC, uh, DVD combo, and you had one Nicolas Cage movie to watch over and over again for four years, what Nick Cage movie are you picking? We'll start with Michael. That's a great question. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a tough choice because there are a few candidates that uh, come to mind instantly, but uh, I've got to say... Uh, wild at heart. I wow. want to spend David four, I want to spend four years with Sailor Ripley and his <laughs> snakeskin jacket. Awesome! Didn't see this pick coming, but I, I should I should suspect that with Michael Emily. How about you? Um, I I I think something like really absurd, like um, that one he did with John Travolta was like they switched faces. Face off. Yeah, face, face off. off. Yes, I, I want to. I want to laugh and cringe and um, be scared and <laughs> be entertained. So, yeah. That is a awesome pick. What about you, Ryan? I, like <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about this as they were answering it. Um, I had a real hoot when I finally caught up with Vampire's Kiss, where yeah. he thinks he's turning into a vampire. And I could see myself liking that on repeat viewing, repeat viewing, and just laughing along, almost going crazy with it like Nick Cage does in the movie. So I, I could, that could be a jam. How about you? I think this might be 
the obvious answer. And it also might be somewhat torturous to watch this movie over and over and over again. But I would go with Mandy. I just love, love that movie. I think it would hold up to multiple viewings. It might be a little torturous by the 500th time, but you know, what movie wouldn't be? So sure. That's my pick. Good stuff. Well, Michael and Emily are sitting in on this entire jaw. They have their top five favorite dramedies picked out. Before we get there, though, Matt, I got a question for you. Yeah. Will the Harry Potter series ever come to an end? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Now, back in 2016, when the first Fantastic Beasts movie came out, I thought it was a nice footnote to the Potter series. Since then, it has been transformed into its own mega series. This latest film marks the third in the series, and the original plan was to have two more films released for a total of five. Rumor has it those plans were put on hold as Warner Brothers waits to see how Secrets of Dumbledore is received. I drank a full bottle of polyjuice and made my way over the wizardly world via broomstick to see if this series has any magic left. This is the team that's going to take down the most dangerous wizard in over a century. A magizoologist, this indispensable assistant. Wizard descended from a very old family, a school teacher, and a muggle. Dumbledore asked that I give you something, Jacob. Are you kidding me right now? Who wouldn't like our chances? Newt Scamander is back, as is Dumbledore, a much younger Dumbledore played by Jude Law. And he has a secret, actually a couple of them. One of them is his loving relationship with Grindelwald, the evil wizard formerly played by Johnny Depp before he was canceled. He has been replaced by the great Mads Mikkelsen, a move I think helps the film. Now, the story opens up with Grindelwald killing a mystical creature known as a Killian just after it was born. Now, these creatures actually can look into one's soul and look into the future as well. They play a large role in selecting the next leader of the wizarding world. However, the Killian has a twin and Newt was able to save him. From there, the plot is kind of simple. Grindelwald is going to attempt to be crowned the new leader, and Dumbledore, Newt, and the rest of the gang are trying to stop him. A subplot, or another secret, revolves around Credence Barebone, played by Ezra Miller, and his relationship to Dumbledore. To be honest, I did not think either secret was worth keeping quiet about, nor were any of them that complicated. In fact, the plot of the movie is far too simple to build any suspense or make me care about the film as a whole. For a movie with fantastic in its title, I did not find anything fantastical about it. I was actually bored for a good chunk of the film. Jacob Kowalski, the muggle from previous two films, continues to be the sole bright spot of the story, but that well is drying up. As for the casting change... Mads Mikkelsen had the perfect tone. I think Johnny Depp would have been mm, too flamboyant for the part. As for Jude Law as the young Dumbledore, I did not see much resemblance, and I don't mean that solely on looks. We do get to see Hogwarts, and I'm sure there are other small Easter eggs in there for uh, the big Potter fans that I didn't quite catch. But overall, I was underwhelmed with the secrets of Dumbledore. 
I really hate watching large action set pieces when I have no investment in the characters on screen, and that was the case here. If I am a moviegoer, I would put on my sorting hat and hope to pick a different film. Mm, that's a shame, man. I'm a, I'm a fan of the Potterverse, as it's come to be known as. It's Are they going to make more movies, Ryan? Yes, of course. If this one makes money, they're going to make another one. I, I think the going into this, I realized what was wrong. I, I remember the Harry Potter films well, but the other two Fantastic Beasts, if you asked me point blank what they were about, and I've seen them both, I couldn't even tell you. They're just not that memorable of movies. I'm like, mm-hmm. man, the I almost one needed like one of those Netflix uh, recaps at the beginning of this one to remind me what happened in the other two films because I couldn't remember, you know? Right. There is there are theme parks built around Harry Potter. There are rabid fans that wait for everything Potter, you know, and in 10 years, they'll probably reboot it, retcon all this away and and do it again, you know, so get ready for that. Uh, Was there a jaw dropping moment? There's probably one great scene that I would say, all right, here is a highlight here for for you. And that's when Newt has to go rescue his brother who's been captured. And the scene involves these scorpions that mimic Newt's movement as long as he moves his body a certain way the scorpions will move that same certain way and they won't attack uh newt and his partner on on the rescue mission however there's also a giant scorpion in the center of this jail cell and it begins to attack that entire sequence by far was the most entertaining moment in the film it's the only jaw-dropping moment that i could pinpoint how about a quote you got a movie poster quote Right at the top of the poster, the magic has left the castle. Mm. What do you rate in this one? How many jaws? You know, I could almost go one and a half, but I'll give it two jaws, Matt. Two jaws. Middle wow. of the road. If you're a Potter fan, go out there and see it. But I, I, I would not if uh, you're not that big on Harry Potter. Was it a dramedy, Rye? It was not a dramedy. It was not. I definitely didn't cry, and I didn't really laugh too much either, but that is our topic this week in honor of a relative, our top five favorite dramedies. We threw this over to Michael and Emily. They each came up with a list. Before we hit record, Emily didn't seem that enthusiastic about her list. Do you have five picked out, though, Emily? I have five picked out, yes. It's a tough topic. Well, it is, we're, yeah. We're going to get started with Emily, your number five dramedy. See, the ranking was hard for me. And like, I look at my list and it it was, it's either like romantic dramedy or like dark, very dark. Mm. Um, I don't think I have anything too middle of the road, but number five, I would sideways. Nice. One of my favorite movies. I love road trip movies. I love how they're the two main characters are opposite and they're like brothers. And I, I love that kind of relationship that push in the pole. And um, yeah, it's great. It really is. We were going to talk about our parameters for putting movies on our dramedy list. And, and it's a good one to examine sideways because I think it fits the bill so perfectly. It's a movie that is a comedy for three quarters of the way. And then the drama really starts to come in and, the beauty of a dramedy is once you get laughing, you've sort of cracked that shell that we all have. So you're laughing along with these characters. And then when the drama hits, you're just in a weak position. You know, you're, you're, you're a, a boxer you're in the 15th round, right? All of a sudden, now that, that right hand comes and you just don't see it coming. Next thing you know, 
you're a puddle on the floor and you don't want the lights to come up because you're, you don't want to be embarrassed that you're, you got tears all over your, your face. You know, I know that's how I am. <laughs> Michael, what do you got sitting at five? So sitting at five for me is uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood from 1994, also starring Johnny Depp long before he was canceled. And uh, for those who haven't seen it, uh, he plays um, the worst film director in the world. And it's a very funny movie about, you know, detailing all of the things that go wrong on all of his ultra low budget, um, you know, film sets. Uh, but I think there's something, if you've ever made a movie, you, I think you recognize how true it is and also how much affection Tim Burton has for Ed Wood as a filmmaker, because Ed Wood had a, had a kind of an indefatigable spirit. You know, he, he, um, he, he wasn't going to be denied. He had so much enthusiasm for filmmaking that it's really kind of a beautiful love letter to filmmaking. It also becomes quite dark when it ventures into Bella Lugosi's um, uh, drug addiction. Great pick. No, no arguments here, man. All right. Uh, at number five, uh, speaking of Nicolas Cage, we, when you asked the question earlier, which one would I take on the, on the island with me? In all honesty, it might be this one. Director Ridley Scott gave us in 2003 an underappreciated Nicolas Cage joint entitled Matchstick Men. Have you guys seen this one? It's, I have. It's funny. He's a, he's a con artist with um, some sort of verbal tick uh, similar to Tourette syndrome. I'm not sure if they if they name it in the film, but he's got like a like a verbal and a, a physical tick where he twitches. Uh, which you would think makes being a con artist pretty difficult, but somehow he's learned to adapt and cope and he's a competent con artist. Sam Rockwell's character comes in as his partner. And I don't want to like give anything away, but it's fair to say in a, in a con movie that uh, the, uh, the script is going to get flipped at some point and it involves his daughter. And the ending of the movie is just, it's very heartbreaking and touching. And it makes me sad every time I watch it. I think this movie's underappreciated. If you haven't seen Matchstick Men, give it a, give it a watch. It's Nicolas Cage month. It is Nicolas Cage month, and it's a, one of his yeah. better performances for sure. I, I like that film a lot. Good pick, Matt. My number five pick is Ryan Gosling at his best. Two thousand and seven, he made a movie called Lars and the Real Girl. Mm. You guys familiar with this one? Yep. This is yeah. This is where. So funny. <laughs> Ryan Gosling has a relationship with a real doll uh, that he names Blanca. <laughs> and he basically brings this uh, doll around town and treats it like it is his girlfriend. It looks, and it, that probably sounds ridiculous, and it is ridiculous in the movie. It's played for laughs. But at the heart of it, why he's doing that, we find out that his mother died during childbirth in which he was conceived. And the father is never really you know, come to terms with it, let's say, and, and always treated Lars in a, in a very standoffish way, which then had this psychological effect on Lars growing up. And he's using this doll in a way to somehow get rid of those feelings. So it really shifts into a drama in the last third of the movie. But the beginning, watching Ryan Gosling play off a real doll is quite spectacular and also quite hilarious. Love that one. So we're into our fours there, Emily. Oh, let's see. I have, this is where I start getting a little dark. 
Go for it. Um, so, I mean, it could be like horror as well, but um, there's a lot of comedy in it. But uh, Parasite by Bong Joon-ho. Like, I don't know oh, yeah. why when I think dramedy, I think yeah, there's a ton of drama, there's a ton of comedy and like, yeah, there is, you know, horror and, and slashers moments and stuff. But I just love when films side characters are just as full and just as engaging as the main characters. Like all pretty much everything on my list is that way. Like I love side characters. I don't even need the main characters. Give me some really good side characters that I'm, gonna fall in love with and want to watch and see their journey and i feel like in parasite i get that no arguments when anybody brings up parasites you just gotta just gotta go with it i love the film so yeah dramedy we'll put it at number four what do you got sitting there michael how do you follow up parasite my number four is uh, also a film made outside of the united states um it's a french film called a christmas tale from 2008 by the director Arnaud Desplechin. I don't know if you guys have seen it. This was actually a big influence on Relative because it's about a family get together over the Christmas holidays. And actually, when I was when I first conceived the idea of Relative, I was trying to think of a good excuse for uh, a family to get together. And I said, no, I can't do Christmas because, you know, Desplechin did that. And I kind of cycled through all of the holidays and I realized They've all been done before, you know, uh, Thanksgiving's been done, weddings have been done, you know, funerals have been done. And then I and then I realized, oh, nobody's ever made a movie about a graduation party as kind of the narrative hook to, you know, bring the family together. Anyway, having said all that, A Christmas Tale is very, very funny and also um, quite, quite dramatic. What's really interesting about it is the main character is played by Mathieu Amalric, who is a great French actor. Um, you, he was a, he was the villain in a James Bond movie a few years ago. I think it was Quantum of Solace. He's a great actor. And his character has been banished from the family for bad behavior, but they're forced to welcome him back into the fold because his mother has a disease and he is the only one who can donate bone marrow to her for an operation that she needs. So oh, wow. uh, it's, a, it's a pretty irresistible uh, premise for a film. That sounds good. One more time with the title. It's called A Christmas Tale. Just A Christmas Tale. Okay, cool. All right, swinging it over to my number four. I'm going with a movie I guess you could call schmaltzy. It's light on the drama, heavy on the comedy, Kind of a feel-good movie in the end, but it's it's got some beats to it. And and one of um, Bill Murray's um, best performances, I would say, in the last 10 years. Um, I'm going with uh, St. Vincent. Schmaltzy, light viewing, very happy. Melissa McCarthy is, is great in it. The kid is great in it. Bill Murray's fantastic always. He plays this drunk curmudgeon. Kind of perfect for him, really. And it's just it's just fun. There's drama in it, but it's mainly a comedy. I would say comedy drama, not drama comedy, if that makes sense. One actress you didn't mention is Naomi Watts in there, who's oh, yeah. hilarious. <laughs> For sure. Good call. Nice pick. That doesn't come up much on Cinema Joss. So I'm Should glad come up that more. it did come up. Yeah. yeah. My number four has come up before, so I'll keep it brief. 2007, I, this is where I put Juno. Yeah. And this is directed by Jason Reitman, 
off a script by Diablo Cody, starred Elliot Page, Michael Cera, and it's, you know, offbeat characters that bring the funny, but the teenage pregnancy and really the storyline involving Jennifer Garner not able to have children who's the mother going to adopt the child really hits all the warm, fuzzy, emotional feelings of the the drama part. So yes, you get all that witty dialogue early, but at the end, I tear up watching Juno, especially even when Juno sees the baby, you know, they go for the uh, ultrasound and she sees the baby. Even that I I get a little choked up with. It's, it's a touching movie. Yeah, it is. No doubt. Into our threes we go, Emily. Oh, right. I've got, this is a UK uh, director, actually my favorite filmmaker of all time, Ken Loach. It's kind of like a, I don't know if you guys have heard of him before, He's a, but it's the film is A Fond Kiss. Hilarious, and there's lots of drama in it. Basically, it's about a, a Pakistani uh, man that falls in love with a Caucasian woman and is kind of keeping her a secret from his family but they keep running into his family who are very involved in his life um and he like secretly wants to be a dj and he's hiding that as well and she's a piano teacher and oh also it's my favorite cinematographer uh barry Aykroyd, who also shot my other favorite ken loach film which is sweet 16 which actually like inspired me to want to be a filmmaker at all like it was it, that was the first film i saw that i was like they make films like this they make quiet films that are feel very real and documentary like i just never seen a film like that and that's how a fond kiss is like too but it's, it's a little bit more commercial so that's my number three i have not seen a fond kiss so i'm going to throw it in the uh, fish tank to see if it's streaming anywhere for the jawheads since i, I want to put that on my queue michael what do you got sitting there my number three is Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, um, wow. which is a film that I first saw when it came out back in 1989. I was 14 years old and uh, absolutely changed my life. And um, I think, uh, you know, it really kind of, you know, opened my eyes to, you know, um, race relations and police brutality and all kinds of social issues. But the thing about Do the Right Thing, I mean, I think it's Spike Lee's best film. People forget how funny it is, you know, because the, the third act of that film is so intense. You see the, you know, the police murder an unarmed black man and then how the community reacts to that. There's rioting and looting. And it's so intense that people forget that the film is basically a comedy up to that point. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it's an amazing film, and uh, it's just as relevant today as it was when it came out in 1989. Great pick. Swings it around to my number three. And this is where I'm going with Lulu Wang's joint from just a few years ago, uh, 2019, right before the pandemic, The Farewell with Aquafina. Wonderful movie wonderful underappreciated unsung movie I, I mean i think it got its its praise at the time but it sort of has, has fallen away since then i i, I want to keep it in the spotlight because i loved the farewell super funny from aquafina but the whole premise of the movie is that the grandmother is dying and this is the last chance for the family to be together and to celebrate with her and then what happens because it's it's at least somewhat based on a true story. What, what we find out happens in the end is is almost 
so hilarious. The movie's funny throughout, very touching at the same time, but the punchline at the end, it's worth the journey tenfold. It's a great movie. Big fan of that one. Yeah. You're, you're, you're hitting hard here, Matt. You're doing really well. Oh, thanks, Rye. I, I always don't love it when you appreciate it. my yeah. list. Don't, don't fumble it on the last two. Um, my number three is The Descendants from 2011. This was directed by Alexander Payne, and George Clooney starred in it right during like George Clooney's hot streak. He also had Up in the Air, could be on somebody's list. It's a great dramedy as well. But Ooh, the I didn't premise here is that uh, George Clooney's wife is in a coma and um, they're going to pull her off life support and she's probably going to die. And it's right around this time that he also finds out that his wife had cheated on him. And there's this all kinds of emotions going on with, you know, his character. This may not sound like there's much laughs, but there are plenty of laughs when he is with his kids traveling around. And it, it in fact, was the first time I really got to know Shailene Woodley. This yeah. was her breakout role. And it's her character and her boyfriend who she's dating that comes along with the family as they're doing these different errands around Hawaii where the film is set. That is just so damn funny early on. So again, it's a movie that hits you with the laughs and then the emotions in that third part, but the descendants, it, it walloped me. I remember. So do you think they set movies like that in Hawaii? So the entire casting crew can have a Hawaiian vacation. I know you always go with that. And I, th- I'm, I do I'm think serious. That, that is the case a lot of times, but the idea that this family actually owns land in the story in Hawaii also plays a part to a, some degree of what the film's trying to say because they were going to sell some of the land. And so I think there was a reason for actually setting it in Hawaii. This isn't an Adam Sandler, let's go make a vacation movie in Hawaii. Yeah. Total premise, you know, slightly different. The Descendants, my number three pick, it leads us into our number twos. Emily. Oh, it's so hard. The ranking is hard. Um, But I I have for number two, the favorite, which is, might seem a little odd, but there's so much no. comedy and so much darkness and so much um, drama in it. Um, I just love it. And I love Olivia Coleman so much and she just kills it. I love period pieces and yeah, I don't know. It was so good. It was so like sexy in a weird way too. It was like interesting to see the, you know, uh, a lesbian queen, <laughs> you know, a secret lesbian queen and, all that. But yeah, so the favorite is my number two. He's a great filmmaker. Like everything he does, I'm super interested in. And the three leads in that movie, uh, like it's tough to decide. Everybody gives the, the, the nod to Olivia Coleman, but it's really tough to decide which one I like more. Yeah. They're, they're yeah Emma good. Stone in there and Rachel Weiss. It, it's a film. I know I've mentioned it on Cinema Jive. I've seen, I think three times now. And each time it just gets funnier the more I watch it. So it's, it's a great film. I love the favorite. Ditto. Yeah, I love when they grovel. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, they like have to grovel so much and it's, just, it's hilarious. <laughs> love it. Michael, what do you got sitting at number two? My number two is The Apartment by Billy Wilder from 1960. He um, goes classic on us. One of, one of the best movies to ever win the Best Picture Oscar, in my opinion. Um, really, really funny film. I mean, it's Billy Wilder, the guy loved writing dialogue he loved slang he and il diamond 
you know, co-wrote the script together and um, it's full of, you know, a million quotable lines, but um, it's also very, very heartfelt, which is not a quality that Billy Wilder is known for because he was a very cynical person. But um, for those who haven't seen it, you know, Jack Lemon plays this very kind of lowly office clerk who um, lets his superiors use his apartment to have extramarital affairs in. And then, of course, the conflict arises when he realizes that his boss, played by Fred McMurray, is having uh, an affair with Shirley MacLaine's character. And Shirley MacLaine is the elevator operator in the building where they work. And Jack Lemmon's in love with her. So he's got this kind of moral conflict. But the other thing that I love about this film is it really it, it, it climaxes on New Year's Eve and it really taps into um, the loneliness, the melancholy of the holiday season. And I think all of the best Christmas and New Year's movies do that because, you know, Christmas is a time where we think we all should be happy. We should be with the people that we love. And so if something's not right, then it, you know, it magnifies uh, it. It magnifies it. Exactly. Yep. Great Great pick. pick. Yeah. Love that film. All right. At number two, I'm going with Bo Burnham's eighth grade. So funny and so touching. And I think what it is about this movie, we've talked about it a lot, so I'm not going to belabor it too much. But the thing is, I don't know if I've ever mentioned just how honest it is with, with, I've obviously I went through eighth grade, so I've seen it from that perspective. But now watching my kids go through eighth grade, it's it's like, man, that movie, like with her YouTube channel and just the awkwardness of being a teenager. I don't know if any other movie has captured it quite as accurately just on that edge of of where innocence turns into, uh, you know, the the teenage hormones. Perfect. Perfect. Love that movie. Can watch it 100 times. What do you got, Ryan? Nice pick at number two. Thanks. Mine is a Seth Rogen film. And I know when you hear Seth Rogen and you're thinking dramedies, how, how could he pull off drama with that laugh? <laughs> but he did. With the help of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yep. he made a movie called 50-50 in 2011. And it's interesting, too, because uh, Seth Rogen writes a lot with his uh, writing partner, Adam Goldberg. And this is actually based in truth on Adam Goldberg's experience. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt fills in uh, for the for Adam's um, character here. And it's based on the fact that he found out he had tumors growing on his spine and doctors gave him a 50-50 chance of pulling through and, and, and actually uh, living. And the movie is just about that. We got Anna Kendrick plays the therapist that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is going through. But how would friends that age, like Seth Rogen, react to a friend possibly having a terminal illness? And it's still with laughs. I mean, you get plenty of comedy early on as they go through this together. But of course, when you're dealing with tumors and possible death, obviously the drama comes in later as well. So it's got a great mix from Rogan and Joseph Gordon-Levitt who balance it perfectly. 50-50, my number two. Nice pick. Into our ones. So here it is. Emily, you don't have to rearrange anything. One pick left. What do you got sitting (laughs) at number one? This is the easiest one. (laughs) 
it's more romantic than all the others. Um, but I believe it's also a Chicago one. Uh, high Fidelity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, it has lots of drama. I mean, that film can make me cry sometimes. Um, and then all the comedy, obviously, that you get with John Cusack and all the side characters. Again, the side characters that bring so much life in that film. Um, you got all Jack the record Black shots in there. Work- I know. It's great. Um, it might even be like my favorite film. Like I could watch that film over and over. It's so good. Uh, but yeah, high fidelity. It's a classic. It's a yep. Chicago classic. It sure it is. Sure is. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I've actually shown that film in class before. Nice. As well, you should. I, so you guys get to gloat about Rogers Park. I live in Wicker Park, and there's obviously the record store and everything in High Fidelity was shot in and around Wicker Park. So good for me, you know. I can You've gloat. You've got a champion, championship vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what do you got sitting at number one? Okay, my number one film is The Rules of the Game by Jean Renoir from 1939, that magical year. A lot of people think it's the best year for movies ever, and I think that's the best film that came out that year. Um, It was hard to, you know, define what a dramedy is. I don't know if you guys remember this. When I was on here last time, we were talking about prodigal son movies. That was hard because I had no, I had to do research to figure out what fell into that category. Sure. And, and for dramedies, it was, it was equally hard for the opposite reason. It was mm-hmm. like, there are, there are too many of them, but rules of the game is unquestionably my number one. It is, it is um, more of a drama than a comedy if i had to consign it to one genre i'd say it's a it's a it's a drama but it's also the funniest movie i've ever seen that's not a comedy because it's about um a group of people who get together for um a weekend long party at someone's mansion in the countryside of paris and it's got a lot of that you know kind of upstairs downstairs social commentary it's about the, the rich people who live in the house and their friends. And then it's about their servants and everyone is screwing around with everybody else. Um, so everyone's cheating on their spouses and um, it gets quite farcical in the middle. And it's absolutely hilarious because um, characters are sneaking around having affairs and they're also trying to kill each other. Um, but then, uh, but, but then it, it, it moves into the realm of tragedy uh, for the final act. And it's absolutely masterful the way Jean Renoir pulls off that tonal shift. That is what I am dedicating my life uh, to try to emulate. And one more time with the title. The Rules of the Game. Never Another seen one I'm writing I, down. Yeah, yeah. definitely write it down. I got to check that one out want to know where it's streaming. All right. My number one, listen, I was really going to sub this out. This is one I struggled with because I went with Coda at number one. It was at the top of my, my favorite movie of the year. And then it, it won best picture. I think it was somewhat unexpected for it to win, but it really is my favorite dramedy because it, it has some genuinely funny moments. Like the, the scene in the doctor's office where, you know, she's translating, um, just the whole back and forth. There's a ton of laugh out loud moments, but then there's some super hard hitting emotional beats like the concert. I I can't think of another 
medium aside from film that could show us the experience of somebody else. Like Ebert called it the empathy machine. But in that moment, so unexpected when the sound drops out and you realize, wow, they, they can't hear her music. And, and it's like a gut punch. So it really has those two things in, in the most harmony. It's, it, it's really funny and really dramatic. And at the same time, it's a great feel good movie kind of uplifting. So I think it's a rare film in that it deserved the win and I'm not subbing it out. That's my number one. Nice. I, I think it, it has exactly what I was talking about where you laugh so hard, you let your guard down because yeah. talk about getting sucker punched. I remember I watched that, you know, just a screener of it here at home. And I remember thinking, I'm crying way too much. I'm crying way too much. What's wrong with me? You know, it's, I was, a, I was a wreck. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's funny, I've watched it a few times and, and r- repeated viewings do not lessen the impact of that scene or any of the, of the beats. It's just a good movie all around. My number one pick, I, I picked a, a director, Mike Mills, who I think is a master at dramedies in general. And I rewatched this. I don't even know why. I sometimes just go to my DVD shelf and, and pick out something completely random. And I picked out uh, 2010 Beginners. And wow. this stars Ewan McGregor and Christopher Plummer. And in it is... The idea here is that the, the, the mother, after the mom passed away, so Christopher Plummer plays Ewan McGregor's dad, after their mom plays away, uh, his dad comes out. He, he's been diagnosed with cancer, mind you, but he comes out of the closet uh, old, you know, later on, obviously, in life, and you know, expresses that you know, he was gay his whole life, but he married his mom, and it goes through this whole story of uh, that he was you know, a closeted gay man that just got through life as he was supposed to. And now in these last few moments that he has, he's living life exactly how he would want to. And so we get a lot of these uh, comedy beats because it's just really just so great to see Christopher Plummer's character having fun and opening up and being who he wants to be. It's like a joyous kind of celebration of a movie. But of course, we also have this dramatic impact coming with what we know is going to be his death and the way he's going to reflect on his father's death and how he lived his life throughout and the changes he had to make during his lifetime. Great film that I don't know if everybody has seen. I don't know if you guys seen beginners. It's, it's a wonderful movie though. I still haven't seen it. I remember you talking about this way back in the day, but I think it's safe to say my number one pick was better. Of course, of course. But do check out Beginners. It's it's a wonderful film. Couple of honorable mentions. I, I mentioned Up in the Air. I, I'm a big fan of Lady Bird. Love that one. Perks of Being a Wallflower, which was yeah, I thought just it. going to be yeah. a, a funny coming of age movie, and then it really hits you with the drama at the end. Silver Linings Playbook. Sure. La La Land and Jerry Maguire. Those were my honorables. I'll do th- I'll do three. You didn't mention. Um, those were all great picks, by the way. Uh, I would go with uncut gems, something about Adam Sandler kind of throws you off as good as it gets for the life of me. I will always love that movie, even though it's, it's sort of a punchline to many jokes, Jerry Maguire. I still think it's a good movie. I'm sorry. Yeah. Any honorables for you, Michael? Oh, um, you know, the, the, there was one filmmaker I wanted to include, but I couldn't quite 
decide on which film and it's John Ford, who's probably my favorite American filmmaker who's known for, you know, his Westerns um, with John Wayne. But um, I thought, you know, I think he's, he's probably the best at combining comedy and drama. And a lot of people don't like uh, the fact that there's so much humor in his films because they find it hard to take them seriously. Mm -hmm. But I, but I guess if I had to pick one, it would be how green was my Valley from 1941 um which is about a family again the disintegration of a family uh in a in a welsh uh coal mining town in the like around the turn of the 20th century and um it's ultimately you know a tragic film but there's one subplot where this little kid is getting bullied at school and um he learns how to box uh that's absolutely hilarious and um and masterful sweet we got some good picks this week right we sure did. Well done, guys. Jawheads, if we missed your favorite dramedy and you have Twitter pulled up, shoot us a tweet. We are at CinemaJaw, or you can email us feedback at CinemaJaw.com. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we have the review Matt is dying to give us. Oh Sonic boy. the Hedgehog 2. Plus, Matt is taking Michael and Emily on in relative movie trivia. Stick with us. Nobody. And I mean, nobody freaks the hell out like Nick Cage. With so many freakouts to choose from, it's difficult to choose just one. And while the visuals of this scene, tidy whities tiger t-shirt, bottle of vodka covered in blood, are an absolute must-see, just listening to the bathroom scene from Mandy is a real treat for the ears. Nick Emmel, the host of the Tennis podcast, started the podcast with his buddy, Brandon, because they love covering top 10 lists. What can listeners expect when they're tuning in? What are the core topics? The Tennis podcast is a comedy and edutainment podcast discussing and breaking down a fact-based top 10-ish list every week in real time, including highest grossing films ever, the worst US presidents, deadliest animals, the best-selling video games, the most visited websites, deadliest cults, and much, much more. Plus, 
fun facts, trivia, hot takes, and hot dogs. Check out the Tennis Podcast at tennishpodcast.com. That's the number one, the number zero, I-S-H-P-O-D.com or on any podcast app like the one you're listening to this podcast on. And we thank them for their support. And we are back on Cinema Jaw, hanging out with Michael Glover Smith and Emily Lape. Their new film, Relative, is on the circuit, the festival circuit, that is. Um, Michael, what's the farthest away you actually sent the film out? Did you send it overseas? Could it maybe screen somewhere that uh, could be very exciting outside of the United States? As a matter of fact, I submitted it to somewhere overseas yesterday. So uh, it's possible we could have an international premiere in the fall. Fingers crossed. Well, I loved it. I loved it. So best of luck with it, Michael. Thank you so much. Again, for the jawheads that want to follow the film, see if it's playing near them, where should we send them online for updates, Michael? Uh, come to my website, which is whitecitycinema.com. That's um, like the color white, W-H-I-T-E, citycinema.com. Do it, Jawheads. Matt, before we get to Sonic and before we get to trivia, we threw two questions into the fish tank. Let's open it up. Who's coming with me besides Flipper? Here. That's a second message. That means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. We're gonna need a bigger boat. No Phil inside the fish tank. No, where's Phil? I mean, I'll, I'm sure I'll the jawheads have is. noticed. That, yeah, there's no Phil this week, and and it's it's very simple, Matt. Uh, Cinema Jaw can only afford to have four people on Zoom at a time. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Phil got Somebody, bumped. Yeah, somebody had to get voted off. Oh, the island and, that is and so not that. true. That is no, not true. no, that is not true. Phil, you, you got to pay a lot that. more for each person after four. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, got to get more Patreons, Matt. Mm-hmm. But no, Phil will be back in the fish tank. Just a personal week. day for Phil. That's all. Absolutely, absolutely. Two questions we threw into the fish tank, uh, both to see if they were streaming. One of them was a fond kiss. Emily's pick on her list. Believe it or not, not streaming anywhere. Can't even rent it for a cost. And so it's not on any of the streamers, nor can you get it at Google or couldn't find it at anywhere. So not yeah. streaming. Maybe go to the local Am- library. Yeah, I was going to say it was just on Amazon Prime, like not that long ago. So that's weird how it moves around, you know? Yeah, true. However, the rules of the game, 1939, is on the Criterion channel. And also Canopy, which is free, uh, not here in Chicago, but a lot of places. If you have a library card, you can get it for free with uh, Canopy. It's also available anywhere. You rent movies for about $2.99. So you can check out the rules of the game. Matt, while we're in the fish tank, really quick. Last week, I reviewed a film entitled Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Oh, yeah. And I absolutely raved about the film. I I said it was a a game changer, an absolute classic. Tried to give it five jaws on a four-jaw scale. You caught up with it. Was I crazy? Was I crazy, Matt? Or is it that good? You are not crazy. That movie is 
something else. It is something else. And I experienced it with my dad and my wife who both hated it. And they are in the extremely small minority that even with them sighing beside me in stereo, I still managed to love, love, love this movie. And I, I think at the end of the day, what I liked most about it is I think it's about ADD. That's what I think the movie is about. What do you think, Ryan? I, mean, I could see somebody who has ADD like yourself uh, coming to that conclusion. Well, we can talk more about it offline here, but I'm serious. I think that that's what the, it almost like we should do a spoiler lounge to talk about this movie because there's so much to discuss. Yes, we, we have to. But you, you, how many jaws on, on a four jaws? Oh, scale? four. And I agree with you. If I could give it five, I would. This is this is one of those game changer movies, I think, um, where we're going to talk about movies we saw before this one and after this one. It's like a Pulp Fiction. It's like a Matrix. It's huge. It's a masterpiece. There's no doubt. I wonder Get if we're going to be talking about it, it at out. the end of the year. Oh, absolutely. We will be. Yeah. That's everything we had in the fish tank. Let's close it up. Sonic the Hedgehog is back for another life, Rye, as he dashes through another film for fans and the young at heart, like Phil and Quinn. But can this level be as good as the first one, or is it game over for the Sega mascot? I hit continue to find out. Hedgehog. It's time to say goodbye to humanity. Welcome to the new norm. This is your moment to be the big hero. Bad time to say this, but I don't actually have a plan. Hey, you got a little something on your... Uh, Someone call an Uber? It's cold in here. Let's turn up the heat. Here's the basic plot. After settling in in Green Hill, Sonic is eager to prove that he has what it takes to be a true hero, Ryan. His test comes when Dr. Robotnik returns with a new partner, Knuckles, in search of a mystical emerald that has the power to, to destroy civilizations. Sonic teams up with his own sidekick, Tails, who was teased at the end of the first movie, and together they embark on a globe-trotting journey to find the emeralds and blah, blah, blah. In this outing, the entire cast of the first film returns with the additions of Idris Elba as the echidna, Knuckles, and Colleen O'Shaughnessy as the double appendaged fox known as Tails. Also returning is Jim Carrey as the evil Dr. Evo Eggman Robotnik. What is not returning is the unexpected charm and laughs of the first movie. Don't get me wrong. Sonic 2 was perfectly serviceable kids movie, and my eight-year-old has already seen it twice. There are some really funny moments and great action and just enough heart to get it across the finish line for parents who find themselves in the audience. Fans of the comics and the cartoons will be delighted, no doubt, by the fan service and the addition of the new characters and the deepening of the Sonic world. Can't believe I'm saying that. But since expectations were so high after the first movie, this one felt a little flat by comparison. The pacing, the plot, the character arcs all felt a little overstuffed, which is a problem for most superhero sequels or many superhero sequels. And something was just missing for me. Sonic the Hedgehog 2, totally fine for kids, but this is no crossover like the first one. Sadly, Jim Carrey goes out on only a decent 
note. Mm-hmm. It, it, but is it one that they'll actually probably make another Sonic? Like we'll probably see this again with Jim Carrey and, and crew. Well, like anything else, it depends on how it does at the box office, but it did. It, it was number one in its opening uh, weekend. So chances are good. Will we see Jim Carrey again? I don't know. They set up a, a potential villain for the third movie who is not Jim Carrey. And he has said in, you know, interviews recently that this is his last movie. He's retiring from acting. Who knows? He said that? I didn't hear he did. that. Holy he did. cow. Mm-hmm. Why would you go out on Sonic? <laughs> Listen, this is not a terrible movie by any stretch. It, and the first one was good. This one is decent. Um, but yeah, it does seem strange. I mean, here's the guy that did, you know, Man in the Moon and Truman Show and T- Eternal, Eternal Sunshine. Sunshine. Oh, yeah. Goodness. But whatever. Is there He's a great jaw-dropping in moment in, in this one? Um, yeah. So Dr. Robotnik gets the chaos emerald and he forms this giant mech of robot, whatever you want to call it. And it's really hilarious. And it has that physicality that Jim Carrey brings to a role. They must've done some motion capture and it was a pretty cool action set piece. It was, it was fun. A lot of fun. Nice movie poster quote. Sonic two isn't as quick to charm as the first, but it still goes fast enough for kids. Got to really start working on shortening those movie poster quotes. That's a lot to fit on a poster. Well, How hey, many man, jaws, Matt? They, they give me extra space. Again, you know, two, two jaws. It's, it was fine. I, I can't really tear it apart. It was, if you like Sonic the Hedgehog, you're going to like this movie. Nice. All right. There's, there's our Sonic review. We don't miss a beat. We got Sonic. And also, Matt, I went and saw, it should be noted, The Northman. We'll get a full review next week, but uh, just to tease it here, this is Robert Eggers, the director who brought us The Witch and The Lighthouse. This is his third feature film, and it stars Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Anya Taylor-Joy, Ethan Hawke, Willem Dafoe pops up in this, and Bjork. Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, it is tribal in nature, very cinematic, great sound. I mean, the, the, the beating drums when these tribes attack villages is oh my god so exciting and just raises the tension and the violence i mean it is a brutal kind of movie with blood splattering just a raw depiction of what it was probably like with these vikings slash nomads taking over villages they're one day literally kings and the next day they're they're slaves to somebody else because it was just an ever-changing landscape of, of people Brutality. at that time. Yes, it was just insane. And, you know, you got some sorcery going on. It really buys into this idea that there's myths and legends that uh, they need to follow this tree of life. It's, it was a great viewing experience. I'll so, say that. It's a, see it in the theater for sure. So there is a dose of fantasy. It's not just like grounded in reality. Okay, cool, cool. Just, just enough, you know, and it's, it's what, whether, whether if the characters believe it or not, you know, some probably aren't into the sorcery as much, but the lead character played by Alexander Skarsgård clearly is into the sorcery and it's sort of him seeking that out to know where he's supposed to go in life and what he's supposed to do. It's got a little bit of a hero's journey to it as well. So you recommending? Overall, very big, very big, okay. big fan. So full review next week on the Northman. 
All right. We like to end our podcast by playing some trivia each week. And in honor of Michael's movie entitled Relative, I came up with this great idea about relatives in Hollywood and and tying that into the trivia. So uh, I went to work and, and hopefully we got some fun questions here. Michael, Emily, you're our guests. You get to choose if you want to go first or let Matt go first. There are steals if somebody doesn't know it. And uh, you do have one rescue. Rescue me, Ryan. I do have clues to all the questions if you get stuck on any of them. And they start off easy, I should say. Do you want to go first? Let's go first. Question number one, over to Michael and Emily. Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter of this famous actress who starred in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. The answer is Janet Lee. That is correct. They start off easy, one to nothing, Michael, Emily. Matt, question two. Jenny McCarthy's cousin starred in this 2011 comedy that also starred Kristen Wiig, Rose Byrne, and Maya Rudolph. Name the movie. Trainwreck. That is incorrect. Oh, oh. oh, my goodness. Repeating the question, and, and Michael's got a look on his face. I Jenny McCarthy's cousin <laughs> starred in this 2011 comedy that also starred Kristen Wiig, Rose Byrne, and Maya Rudolph. Name the movie. I know the answer. Go it's, ahead. Bri- it's Bridesmaids. It is Bridesmaids. <laughs> yes, it is. And by the way, I have a piece of trivia for you that might blow your mind. Jenny McCarthy is also the aunt of the cinematographer of relative Olivia Aquilina. Wow. My mind is blown. It's gone. (laughs) Everyone's related. It's a small world. I love it. Two to nothing, Michael, Emily, and question three is over to them. They can blow it wide open right here. Jonah Hill's sister starred in this 2019 comedy directed by Olivia Wilde about two female friends and their last day of high school. Name that movie. I know the answer. Emily, do you know it? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's Booksmart. It is oh, Booksmart. Oh, I love Booksmart. That almost made my movie. list, actually, for dramedies. I thought it was so good. Three to nothing. Yes, that was Jonah Hill's sister in, in the lead there. All right. Three to nothing, Matt. You need this question. Oh, man. I'm question still reeling from that train wreck answer. Go ahead. <laughs> silly, silly man. Question four to you. Denzel Washington's son has made one movie with Spike Lee. Name it. Black Klansman. That is correct. John David Washington, the lead in Black Klansman. It is three to one. Matt is on the board. Question five back over to Michael and Emily. Emma Roberts, the niece of Julia Roberts, Jumped into this horror franchise in the fourth film in the series. Name the horror franchise. Emily, you got anything? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I think. Can I? Uh, can we? Can we get a lifeline here, Ryan? Yeah. You want a rescue? Yes. Let's, your yeah. clue. Your clue on question five is: This horror series had a fifth installment come out earlier this year. Oh, it's got to be Scream. That is correct. Yes. Emma Roberts was in Scream 4. They are up now four to one. Matt, you need all of the questions somehow. No problem. To just tie them. To just Easy. Tie them. Easy. Here you are. Question six, Matt. The last movie Josh Brolin's famous stepmom made 
was in 2012 entitled The Guilt Trip, which starred her and this comedic actor. So you're assuming that I know who Josh Brolin's stepmom is. That's part one. Ah, <laughs> uh, rescue me, Ryan. Give me a clue. Whoa, rescue me, Ryan. His name came up earlier, as did his laugh. Wait, wait. Can you read the whole question? Because I don't think now Seth I'll Rogen is, is Josh Brolin's stepmom. <laughs> now I'll read the whole question again, but you're on to it, Matt. The last movie Josh Brolin's famous stepmom made was in 2012. The movie was entitled The Guilt Trip, which starred her and this comedic actor. Okay, cool. Seth Rogen. There you go. <laughs> Who the hell is his stepmom? Wow. Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Barbara Streisand. I had no idea. Josh Brolin's stepmom. Yes. But Seth Rogen and Barbara Streisand. There you go. What a combo. Made the yeah. guilt trip in, in 2012. You're two points, but Michael and Emily have four points. They can win it right here on question seven. Emily, Goldie Hawn's daughter has been nominated for one Oscar. What film was it for? Goldie Hawn's almost, daughter. Almost famous. Almost that famous. That is correct. <laughs> I got wow. one. Yes. <laughs> Kate Hudson, for those that do not know, is Goldie Hawn's daughter, nominated for Almost Famous. They have won this ball game, man. It's five to two. Last question of the game is over to you. Quincy Jones's daughter, Quincy Jones's daughter, has made one movie with Bill Murray. It came out in 2020. What was the name of that film? Came out in 2020. Do you know who Quincy Jones's daughter I know, is? No, right I, I know who Quincy Jones is. Um, what did Bill Murray do in 2020 to Ghostbusters, right? I mean, Ghostbusters Afterlife is my guess. So it, it's, it's really painful for me when I know we've reviewed it on the show and we talked in great lengths about it here on the podcast and, and you, you, you do this to me. Shame, what, Matt. What, Shame. Was it? what was ding, it? Ding, ding, ding. Shame. Um, you guys got a it? chance. You got, got a chance for it here, Michael. Do you know it's, this one? It's uh, Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks. Oh. On the Rocks, it is. Yes. I've been trying wow, they, to forget that movie. I'm sorry, but that movie was <laughs> trash. It was really that bad. I just for want to record, forget it exists. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. For yeah, the record, yeah, Quincy Jones's daughter is Rashida Jones. That is Quincy Jones's daughter. So ah. she starred with Bill Murray in Love on the Rocks. Michael and Emily win this one. Five, uh, six to two. It wasn't even close. Uh, can we get a virtual handshake here? Virtual fist bump. There we go. If it came down to a tie or a jawbreaker, this question would have been only to Michael. Michael, better actor, Warren Beatty or his sister, Shirley MacLaine? Um, and I have to say... Without a, you know, I love them both, uh, but my my heart is with Shirley, especially since I brought up the apartment earlier. That is incorrect. Absolutely incorrect. It is Warren <laughs> Beatty, unfortunately. <laughs> Question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The real jawbreaker was this age of Goldie Hawn closest to we'll start with Matt. What do you got for Goldie Hawn? Wow. Goldie Hawn has got to be in her. Wow. She might be in her seventies. Nah, late, late sixties. Let's say she's 67 years old. 
Whack him in at 67. Michael, you got a guess? I mean, I think um, it's really not polite to guess a woman's age. So I'm going to defer to Emily on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Pressure's on him. How how old is Goldie Hawn? Um, let's say 74. Give that one to Emily right on top of it. 76 for Goldie Hawn. Matt. Oh, 76. shit. Wow. Yeah. She's up that, there. Yeah. Wow. She looks great. Yeah, she does. She Absolutely. does look great. Yeah. I mean, well, she looks great. Yes. No clue. She, she'd gotten that, that old. Matt got slaughtered in trivia again. Unbelievable. Brings us to the end of a great job. First and foremost, we got to thank Michael and Emily. Congratulations on the film and thanks for coming on Cinema Jaw. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. This was so much fun. Loved it. Absolutely. Matt, we also got to thank our sponsors. We do, Ryan. Thank you to the thank you to Overcast and to the Chicago Podcast Co-op who help us get great sponsors like them. We also got to thank our Patreons for supporting the show. Please, if you want to support us, it really means the world to us. You can go to patreon.com backslash cinema jaw and support for as low as a dollar a month. And uh, you get extra bonuses and it really means a lot to us. If you can't do that, another way to support the show is by leaving us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And clicking subscribe. That, that, that really helps us out a lot. So please, uh, if you like what you're hearing, do that as well. Sure, 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 sure does, Matt. I like when they click subscribe and leave a review. Hopefully, they'll they'll do both, you know. Until next week, I'm Ryan the Movie Guy. And I'm Matt Kay. And And keep keep on on jawing about about the the movies. movies.